Hi everyone, I'm Johan Martinez Kalilian, an executive coach at Novus Global. Our firm launched Beyond High Performance to offer a space for inspiration, information, and exploration of how to grow and achieve our best selves. Beyond High Performance is a podcast channel containing three shows, On Coaching, Your Finest Hour, and The Meta Performance Show, plus monthly bonus episodes. Across these shows, executive coaches have taught us helpful life and career tools, and we've gotten to listen to interviews with some of the most compelling high achievers out there who have broken barriers in their lives and respective fields. Professional athletes, Hollywood creatives, business pioneers, a Navy SEAL, and more. We launched this podcast in June of 2021, and since then, we've released over 40 episodes across three different shows within the podcast. We received gold in the 2021 W3 Awards. We've hosted 20 guests, and we've heard from over a dozen Novus Global coaches. And we've had listeners tuning in from over 40 countries. Listeners, we sincerely thank you. We hope you'll stick with us in 2022 as we continue to discover, ask questions, and push the bounds of our capabilities. Now, the conversations we've had on here have yielded great insights, best practices, expert advice, and moments of vulnerability. We dove deep into a diversity of topics and spoke to guests with really unique perspectives. No two episodes were alike. But at the same time, we did see several thematic through lines that connected these episodes, and we wanted to highlight some of them for you. They are leadership, rest and wellness, learning and curiosity, fear and risk-taking, so as a capstone to our podcast's first six months and the end of 2021, we put together a compilation of some of our favorite quotes and meaningful moments. Let's start with leadership. In this section, we hear from Jason Jaggard, Marcus Colston, John Roberts, Dan Leflar, Chantel Little, Mark Richt, R.A. Dickey, Adrian Brown, Floyd Norman, Michael Cioni. Talk to us about entrepreneurialism and talk about your work with uh, younger leaders around the area of entrepreneurialism. I'd love to hear you talk about that. For sure. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, working with, working with younger and upper, up and coming leaders is something that uh, it's, it's, it's really a passion point for me just because I was somebody that I never really saw myself as a, as a, a leader, um, you know, on my teams or, or, I, I'm not your, your prototypical leader. That's the rah-rah guy in the middle of the huddle, um, getting everybody going. Um, but the, the ability to, to try and lead through action and lead through intention is, is an area that I, I really uh, focus in on with up and coming leaders, because at the end of the day, we, you don't hear a lot of talk and you don't hear a lot of rhetoric around. There are multiple ways to lead. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, there, there is this, this perception and this, this view of what leadership looks like. And one of the things that I really try to focus in on is that you can lead in your way and your uniqueness um, and create the same impact as, as anyone else that leads in the, the, the typical or the prototypical way. Yeah, and I wonder how many people uh, disqualify themselves from, that, from the identity of leader because mm -hmm. it doesn't look like everybody else. If I'm working with a leader and they tell me something's hard, I try to not tell them that it's not hard, right? Because that's the experience mm -hmm. they're having. And I actually don't try to tell them that it's going to be easy or it is simple. I love moving into the exploratory to where we use words like, hey, it's new. We've never done it before, especially with leaders. Because leaders, they get to this point where everyone thinks they have the answer. Everyone mm -hmm. thinks they should know it. They start to believe that they should know it. And I think it's why coaching is such a sacred space for the highest of performers, because they get to explore again. They get to say things again. They get to express emotions again. They get to actually open the box of all the fears and anxieties that they have suppressed. And it's like, let's go there. Let's see what happens. And often from that, that's that new transformation, that new life. It isn't lost on me that you had a team of 11 when we started, when we met you, and now your team is 26, like not more than double the, the, the staff size. My guess is if we went to metrics of revenue, there would be a lot more there too. Um, so it's just, it's so, it's so interesting that the coaching journey began with you identifying this, this belief, yeah. oh, I, I need, somebody else needs to do this. I, it can't be me. 
um, and, and, and just to see where you're coming now. But I, you were going to say something. I, I wanna, well, I want you just to that I saw how my limiting beliefs, because I kept saying they were beliefs I had about myself. And they were, but they were actually impacting Tiller's growth. And yeah. I, I hadn't really connected that. We've been trying to think about how do we provide more support to our team and staff in terms yeah. of their own growth. And that's really exciting for us because we really do want to see people continually grow and evolve. And I think in the past, we've put a lot of pressure on ourselves that all of that has to come from Brandon and I. Um, but even like it can happen within the team, right? There's that book, Tribal yes. Leadership, that we read yeah. in coaching and this concept of triads, like connecting people within the team and allowing them to grow together and yep. work together. So I think some of it is creating continually investing and creating those triads within the team. Mm. Brandon and I still absolutely doing that at a leadership level, but also when it makes most sense to have that external input, making sure that we do what we can to, to provide that. So I would say like taking the things we learned and really building them into the DNA of our culture yeah. and then reinforcing them as yeah. well is really important. Celebrating when people actually like when celebrate when people live out those principles when you show up as a leader in a new way and you have a new mindset you have a new energy it changes everything and and i really believe that like the change in mindset has been huge for tiller's growth sometimes people want to give you a job description but they don't give you the authority to do your mm -hmm. job and that's very frustrating in the coaching profession of a co head coach that's going to micromanage everything you do. And mm. all of a sudden, after a while, you're like, you know what? I'm getting out of here because this guy's driving yeah. me nuts. Or on the mm. other hand, if you hire this guy to do a job, you give him the authority to carry it out. He takes ownership of that thing. You're going to build loyalty between you and him for sure. Obviously, he's got to be very competent, but, it, but he does have to be a, a person of character. Because if you bring in people with bad character, I don't care how good they are. It's going to bite you in the end. It's going to cost you. What else would you do for for character? Would you call it like character school, character development? Would we called it character. We called it character education. We talked about how can we practically lead this team. Let's try something today. Let's all be hmm. positive. Let's go to practice, hmm. and every single guy in this room, be positive about. Just set the tone for the day, that we're going to say something good about your teammate, or fire somebody up in some way, or just. Do your job with enthusiasm and let's just see what happens. Let's see if it spreads throughout the team. And every time, you know, we had a great day. I would even do that as the leader sometimes, just as the head coach. Say, I, everywhere I touch, whoever I touch today, I'm going to say something positive to them. Now, I, mm -hmm. I learned some of this from my wife. Mm -hmm. She says, honey, do those, do those kids know you believe in them? Do those mm -hmm. coaches know you believe in them? And I'd be like, well, they got to do something for me to believe in them. She said, no, works. <laughs> she said, you got to believe in them and they got to know it. And then they'll, they'll grow into that. They'll become mm -hmm. that because they know you, you they, they, they know the head man believes in them, you know, yeah. find something positive and then say, you know what? That was phenomenal. That was a great job. Whatever. You don't have to make stuff up because good things are happening. A lot of times whatever we expect that to happen. Well, you know what? If you, if you reward behavior, a certain behavior, it's going to, it's going to keep happening. Yeah. And the reward might just be at a boy or at a girl in front of everybody in the building. You know, that sometimes that's all somebody needs to continue that kind of behavior and others to say, you know what, I want, I want the head man to say something good about me. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit better. You know, like I'm just not, I don't have the, the talent. I don't have the talent that I once had. So if I want to stay here and keep chasing the dream of being a professional baseball player, I got to come up with something different. And this is where somebody loved me well. They saw that. They, they pulled me in the office, Oral Hershiser and Buck Walter, right after that game. And they said, listen, bud, like we like you. You've got a lot of intangibles. We love your work ethic. You know, you, you have a lot of things we really covet. But what you're doing out there right now just isn't going to cut it. And it was a real honest conversation. And thankfully, I was in a place where I could receive that. And they didn't release me. They didn't fire me. They didn't say, you stink. Go home. You're just a pawn on a chessboard. Yeah. We don't care about you anymore. And, and, and you are to some degree. But they had some latitude for me. And I saw it as love. 
for me. You know, like they were, they really cared about me. I mean, a genuine kind of uh, caring. And they said, we want you to become a full-time knuckleballer. Now, if you choose not to do that, then we probably will release you. But we want you to have the opportunity to go down back down to the minor leagues and try to figure out how to be a major league knuckleball pitcher. When he called me in the office, it was almost refreshing. When he when they said, look, we want you to go do this thing because we believe in you. It was like a shot in the arm. So like in retrospect, I saw it as incredible leadership. Instead of dismissing me, they saw that I had something maybe that could be helpful and they helped to cultivate that, right? They saw something in me at a time when I really didn't see it in myself. Now that was exciting. And they said these words, they said, we want to give you room to fail because you're going to fail at this because it's so new and so hard to do, which is why you don't see any knuckleballers up there is because it's it's so difficult of a thing to do. And they realized that. So when I went down there, it was with that mission to try to be the best knuckleball pitcher that I could possibly be. Floyd's been able to work with Steve Jobs, Walt Disney. Uh, Steve was a uh, you know, owned Pixar. One of the things I was really curious to ask about that from you, and it sounds like that was part of the culture, both with Frank and Ollie and others and, and with Walt himself and with Steve Jobs later. I guess the question I want to ask is why do people put up with it? Why didn't people just leave and quit Disney? Why, why do people just say, screw you, Walt, and then go and do something else? Well, some people did. <laughs> oh, yeah? Some people did. Well, you know what? Uh, I, I've had the opportunity to, to uh, be around some pretty impressive leaders during my career. You know, Walt Disney and Steve Jobs were both extremely demanding, hmm. uh, not easy to work for. But they were men who had a vision uh, and men who settled for nothing less than your, your, your best. I think that kind of individual draws out the best in you. Hmm. You recognize that it's not going to be an easy journey. You recognize that you're going to screw up and you're going you're gonna to hear from the boss when you do. However, you know that if you make it, if you survive, you know that you've pleased somebody who was not easy to please, who was uh, very tough, very demanding. And there's a sense of accomplishment. You know, one day I, I received a compliment from, from Steve Jobs. So when you get a, a thank you from Steve Jobs, this is what makes your job worthwhile because you know that you're working for the best. And that, that means that you're up there, you know, you're on the A team, you know, you're not, you're not on the C team, the B team. Yeah. So a few things I hear there is it's a little bit about making someone else happy, which feels good, but also to do that, you're in this elite squad. And I also make up Floyd yeah. that when they are demanding, it's not because they're trying to be difficult. They're not trying yeah. to hurt you. They're being difficult as an effort to serve the vision and to right. serve you as an artist to bring out your best. Exactly. Exactly. And I wonder if sometimes people miss that point is like, I think some leaders study Steve and to some degree Walt and they think, oh, they're tough, so I'm going to be tough. Yeah. As if that's the solution. Whereas, no, no, they were tough because they were so fiercely committed to bringing out the best in people right. and, and making something great. Yeah, making something truly great. Yeah, one of the great things about working for Walt Disney and, and Walt Disney in particular was that you knew you were working for a great company uh, because you, you knew that, that the leadership you know, had a vision. They wanted to do something good. They wanted to do something great. They wanted to create something. You want to work for a company that has a culture that that uh, cherishes, you know, innovation mm -hmm. and creativity and, and getting the best from everybody. I think sometimes people are like, oh, you know, I can't be Steve Jobs. I can't be Walt or other great leaders. Um, but I think yeah. it is worth asking Hey, what, what is the bigger picture? What is the bigger vision? And then that earns, in some ways, that once you find that thing, then you can create a little tougher environment because now the struggle is worth it rather than just being a struggle for struggle's sake. What are some of the attributes of a leader who's able to sail in the technological cyberspace landscape? Well, the first thing is fluidity and flexibility. One of the worst attributes of people is their lack of fluidity in situations, right? And so those are people that are like strong planners. We're all related to a very strong planner. You're going on a trip. We're going to stop here for gas. We're going to stop here for this. We're going to pack this and we're going to arrive at this hotel. And as soon as something goes wrong, what happens to that person? They start to they lose, lose it. it, right? And they're like, oh yeah. my gosh, and they freak out, right? That's a lack of fluidity. And if that can't get you through a vacation, imagine trying to start a business, right? It's, it's the fact that you have to relinquish control and power and realize I have no power in this. All I have is instinct and I need to be fluid and flexible when those things inevitably change. 
Second thing is being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? We have to really actually covet the uncomfortable feeling. And uh, if, if there is um, an attribute that you need to have to do any of this stuff, which, is, which transcends all markets, mm. entrepreneurs and leaders need to have positivity bias. We must default to the glass half full. We must, because we're going to be met with so many no's, so many yellow, yellow lights are sometimes as good as you get. You know, it's like all these red lights. Oh, a couple of yellows. Thank you. Right. And, you know, when you're in traffic, red, 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 yellow. I'll take the yellow, hit the gas because I'm still going. That's right. right? This is where positivity bias kicks in. I think companies really get the back end of relationships wrong, like the, the termination. I think when you when you lead and have these open and honest conversations, the company can win. The individual can win. It, it, to me, the word is honor. I think all parties can be honored. Mm. Even when an individual doesn't want to grow, it's like, great. You know, like, thank you for your honesty. This is where the company is going. So how can we honor the ending of this? This is, this is a, um, I don't know if it's a challenge, probably more of an invitation to any CEO or leader of a team or a company out there. Have a vision for how people leave your yeah. company. And don't let that be a secret. Yep. Like, I, th- I think most people have a vision for how you onboard and how you hire. Like, have a mm-hmm. vision for how people leave it. And imagine if you were able to talk openly about that amongst your team and say, hey, when it aligns that you're here and, and when the vision aligns and, and when the growth aligns, it's awesome. And mm-hmm. then we really value when it doesn't align anymore, here's that process for us. And and I actually think that takes a lot of the scariness out of it for yes. most people because it's like, oh, my goodness, like, wow, these people are humans. They get it. Things change. Mm-hmm. Circumstances change. And um, to me, that that is life giving to, to all parties. Rest and wellness. In this section, we hear from Mark Richt, John Roberts, Jason Jaggard, Dan Leflar, Danielle Smith. David Gerber, Regina Chow Trammell, Amanda Jaggard, Chris North, Marcus Colston, Andrew Ladd. Now, I'm a walking commercial for a guy who should have taken better care of himself. You know, mm. I should have eaten better. I should have slept m- more. I should have exercised more. I retired from coaching because I was exhausted. I was, I was washed out physically mentally spiritually and then that's coming from a guy who thought he had a good beat on having balance in my life i've learned uh since i've had this parkinson's that the brain gets rid of toxins only through sleep so if you don't get enough sleep your brain is not going to detox i don't care how hard you work it's going to get foggy up there you know sometimes you need a nap more than you need a pep talk but I think you have to be very intentional and plan out how exactly are you going to eat, how exactly are you going to get your sleep, and uh, and how are you going to, you know, get rid of the toxins in your body. Because if you don't, it's going to catch up to you. In coaching, you, you say it all the time, I, and I think it was Vince Lombardi who said it. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. Mm. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. So when you're exhausted... It's hard to be bold. It's hard to be brave. It's hard to make those decisions that need to be made, that you know that need to be made. But you're like, I don't have the energy to do it. I can't, I can't keep doing it. In the high-performance athletic space, it makes so much sense, right? You train, you live your life in a certain way so that you can pour yourself out over the course of you know, a game, over a race, so that at the end, like one of your signifiers is like, I spent, I spent myself in, in a worthy yes. way. To yes. me, that correlation is not as clear when you move over into career and a workspace and a, and a nine to five or, you know, however many hours yeah. people are working these days. And even how this goes to team leaders. How are you setting an example and setting a vision and intention for your team to go, hey, this is what I think it looks like for us to go play the game this week, mm-hmm. this month, this year. Hey, guys, mm-hmm. this is how this is how I want our performance to look. This is how I want us to feel at the end. Like imagine if every if every corporate leader like had a great idea 
of like what their team would look like in the way that a, a, a sports team looks like that where you're where you're exhausted at the end, but you've given it all. Yeah. And now you you know you have a plan to go refresh your body so you get to do it again. In all sport, there's a beginning, middle, and end. And it's very clear about, I mean, imagine an Ironman where you're running and then as soon as the Ironman was done, the people running the, the Ironman said, surprise, you're going to run another one <laughs> starting right now. And so I think, I think it's important for leaders to think about, and in our coaching work, we even use the word sprints and saying, okay, here's a sprint, but then also when does the game stop? I don't think employees or yeah. teammates and companies are not against you moving the goalposts after a significant accomplishment, but, but maybe the missing piece is what does the rejuvenation period look like between goalposts yes. moving? I find often when people are considering meta performance, do I want to grow? Do I want to, you know, leave the safety of the comfort of what I know to go answer some of these questions like, will I get hurt? Will I burn out? Will it be too much for me? Will they ask for more? Yeah. Um, I, I find all those to be reasons people stay. They're like, no, 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 it's, it's safe over here. Yeah. Well, and there's a deeper conversation that happens too, because I think like when you start thinking about a goal, like a particular goal, and then you start asking those questions, and then you start, I think, asking one of the more powerful questions, which is like, who would I need to be to do that? One of the answers is probably healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I would, I would, how would I need to upgrade even the way I rest? And that, how would I need to upgrade the way I care for myself in order to, like, I'm, I'm training for an Ironman. It's, I've been training for an Ironman for three years because of the pandemic. But like, there's this idea, like, there's my goal. But if I don't train for it, if I don't upgrade my diet, and I don't upgrade a lot of the, the, the rest and the rituals and all those things around it, I will die. Like, I, I will not, I will, I might achieve the goal, but my body will completely fall apart. So yes. I think meta performance is not just about the goal. It's about the whole system of upgrading the individual to achieve that, rest included. Everybody can achieve meta performance if they've got that learning mindset. And so what it is, it's what am I capable of, right? It is that learning mindset. I think a struggle that we've had is how to create that culture without burning out our team members. If we're always pushing ourselves beyond our capabilities, we already got a lot of priorities. There's no way we can achieve meta performance across all of those. And that is something that we're struggling with as an organization and trying to work through. Yeah. One of the companies we worked with, they, they came up with this term of like, what does meta performance fatigue look like? And it was really interesting conversation. And the CEO was asking his, his leadership team if they were experiencing meta performance fatigue. And we helped them kind of retweak the conversation from a binary, like yes or no, to on a scale from one to 10, how how much meta performance fatigue are you experiencing? And we found it to be a really good pulse for them to just go, yeah, I'm, I'm really feeling it. And then, cause then what you can do is if I'm feeling it at a level seven, then we can figure out what can we do to get, to bring that down closer to a one in terms of the, the fatigue I'm experiencing and find it as a way to kind of recalibrate and reset of, of what that looks like. We use a lot of metaphors with high level athletes and a high level athlete, you know, if somebody can go sprint a hundred yards, they're the best in the world at that, but you put them on a 400 and they lose. And so if you don't create structures with which to give yourself a break or breathers or periods of recovery, it, you can get into this fatigue place. I think what's been exciting when we were talking about kind of therapy history, so it, it's been a very cognitive kind of way of doing therapy in the last 20 years. And I think we're moving away from that. And that's, I think, because of the mindfulness um, what's called third wave behavioralism. So what mindfulness and breath work have in common is this idea that your body and your mind, and I would venture your soul are all connected. So if you, if you tap into one, it's going to affect the other. I think before in therapy, it was all about just the mind or the psyche, which is hard to define. And maybe we can credit like the psilocybin and ayahuasca's to some of this kind of movement <laughs> into body work, right? Which is, and I think EMDR has been around for a long time. Well, I mm -hmm. used to, I was interning at the VA, um, working with vets and we, that was when the trend of EMDR was coming in. So this idea that your eye movement can affect the way you think, right? And just your breath, just everyone take a pause and take a deep breath. It just feels so good. So I could get into the, you know, the mechanisms, but you know, our bodies yeah. really do signal our parasympathetic 
And um, our feelings are generated through our bodies, not just our thoughts. Burnout's happening all over the country and all over the world anyway. Um, That's, you know, they're calling it the great resignation. People are resigning, retiring, rethinking their life, deciding to work less, et cetera. And so for those of us who are still in the game a little bit and still advocating and growing and building and, and creating the world, it's important for us to be thinking about how to do that well. How have you learned how to rest? How have you learned how to recreate, recreate? How have you learned how to maintain your energy so that you don't burn out? There are two kind of big pieces for me. One is celebration. I've really realized how not good at that. I truly am celebrating myself, celebrating my achievements. We do acknowledgements as a part of our firm culture, but doing that, slowing down, there's an incredible amount of vitality and energy that flows from it. And and it's simple. It doesn't take that much time. And then the whole idea of if you work with your mind, rest with your hands. If you work with your hands, rest with your mind. Like going to do something that's outside of the ordinary, that is not something I normally do, that gets me out of my context, that, that, that I find incredibly restoring. A key thing for me has been I have margins everywhere. Hmm. I don't do anything back to back. I did for a season, like just rushing, 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 rushing. And then my nervous system is like completely activated and it doesn't know how to calm itself down. And so just creating margins, creating longer drive times now that we started driving places again, Hmm. like just creating bigger, bigger margins. To me, there is a, uh, a real like self-care almost in keeping your commitments. If somebody comes in to me having going like, Hey, I'm out of alignment with my integrity. I'm out of alignment. I haven't, I, I have some, some broken commitments, some breakdown and they're feeling low energy. That is the result of a broken promise. That's the result of, a, of, mm-hmm. of being out of alignment. And this is, what's interesting is so many people are, they're like, I'm burned out. I'm losing energy. I'm, I'm just so quote overwhelmed. And one of the first things I'll look at is going, how many things are you intending to do thinking you quote should do uh, putting on yourself, piling on yourself that are that you're inadvertently committing yourself to that you're not doing. And almost every time it's like we have a laundry list of all of the things that that person is intending to do, meaning to do, even wanting to do, that they're not intentionally creating time and space for. And, and then they come in with low energy and think like, oh, I'm just, you know, slow it. Yeah, of course you have low energy. You have yeah. a huge list of things that are hanging over your head, quote unquote. And and so one of the first things that we do is, is move towards creating kept promises. When, when you start performing at that high of a level, um, you become obsessed with it. Hmm. And through that obsession, sometimes you lose that you, you lose that, that counterbalance. What is, what's the counterbalance? And like, I, I just speak from my, from my perspective, yeah. Uh, for my first three or four years, I was all consumed with football. If I, if I had a thought about doing something else, I felt like I was cheating on the game. Mm. <laughs> and through, through that obsession, yes, I was able to really, I was able to get and gain a ton of insights around my, my performance on the field, off the field. Um, but that counterbalance is like, what are, what are the things that, that actually make me make me whole? What are the things that from a holistic standpoint, um, they might not be, it might not be intuitive that it actually makes me a better player and a better performer, but you know, what are those things that I'm missing out on? Is it, is it just being able to unplug? Is it, is it just being able to be mindful and enjoy some downtime and enjoy some relaxation and recovery? Um, is it, you know, eventually I started to venture into business opportunities. Um, and what I started to find is that the more that, that I was able to find that counterbalance and the, the thing, the areas where I was able to unplug, the, um, the more I was able to take insights that were more tangential and apply them to the game. Yeah, sorry. So I, that has a counterintuitive brilliance to it. I had a mentor of mine say a couple of years ago, Jason, if you don't take a vacation, I'm not going to be your mentor anymore. Right. And his point was, you have no idea how much of a deficit you are to your team if you don't take a break. Mm-hmm. And that was really pivotal for me. How did the counterbalance finding those other things impact your game? It, it actually, it, in a funny way, when I was away from it, it allowed me to miss it. Mm. Um, you know, so when I was, I, I would take breaks and, and 
interestingly enough, like I found this out by accident. I ended up with uh, an off-season surgery where I, I, I was rehabbing and I couldn't really, I couldn't train. You were forced. So I had, yeah, I was forced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I had to find other ways to occupy my time and occupy my brain. You know, what I started to find is that the more, it was more of a holistic approach to, to building myself as a, as a person and as a, as a, um, as a performer. I had a constant cycle of just kicking the shit out of myself, mm-hmm. you know, like to, to try to motivate myself that way. And I think we're built in a way to kind of just keep going, right? Mm-hmm. Something bad happens. It's just like, get back up and try hard, try hard again. Just keep trying hard. Just keep trying hard. Yeah. And that's been the motto built in your head since you were, you know, six years old. Huh. So I, I think we're, we're caught in that cycle and just that those are the habits that we innately have. And, and it's, it's tough to, to break out of those unless you're willing to kind of step away and, you know, have a conversation with someone who can make sense of it and say, Hey, like this might be a better way. And you know, you don't have to do that, right? Like there's, there's a different way and, and you can yeah. be a little kinder to yourself. But I think, I think it was LeBron James. I heard an interview with him where he talked about how much he slept and how he yep. sleeps like, mm-hmm. like 12 hours, 12 hours. Somebody who's stupid might say that's lazy, but because of how he treats his waking hours, it demands that kind of rest. Yes. And so as you are engaging in this, and one of the things that uh, it would be great, for, I think we can continue to grow in helping companies understand is there, there needs to be a equal proportionate upgrade of resting yes. as you upgrade your performance. Learning and curiosity. In this section, we hear from Amanda Jaggard, Randy Poon, Joseph Thompson, Laura Leflar, Jason Jaggard, Danielle Smith, Marcus Colston, Regina Chow Trammell, Brian Ferguson, R.A. Dickey, Dan Leflar. I liked the educational space. I liked being in the classroom. I liked learning. That was safe. I could have probably been a career student and stayed in school for forever. Like I was petrified to do my student teaching because that was like real life. (laughs) But our clients and adults come and they have all of these uh, about education and like getting the A's. I need the instructions. I need things laid out. I need uh, the, the syllabus at the start of the semester. So I know exactly what's coming, but life isn't that way. Business isn't that way. Success doesn't work that way. And so I find as a coach, I'm helping people unlearn some of the things that they know. I was unlearning the things I knew about education and actually practicing what I knew about learning. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's like, yeah, distinction. Yeah, education is one thing, but actually how I learn and how I wanted to invite my kids to learn and how adults learn was something totally, totally different. And that is, I think, what the coaching space is. It's it's this project-based learning where people are testing out things. And we like play, right? Like you test out assumptions, you take risks, something will happen. You, you know, you, you test it out and that's how you learn and that's how you grow. You know, one of the things too, is that as coaches, I think as we continue to grow ourselves is this idea of us being students of, mm. you know, having that, that constant so set sense of curiosity of learning, you know, so many of the coaches, and, and this is the amazing thing that, and as, as I've gotten into this, into the, this, the whole arena of coaching is, these respected coaches that have been training me, they go to other coaches to constantly learn themselves. Yeah. And it's this ongoing, continual learning process of saying, you know, of being curious and how can I grow and how am I getting my own way? And I mean, it doesn't matter what age we are. It's like there's that sense of continual learning. Yes. And that's, we haven't got it made yet. You know what I mean? In the sense of, of like, oh, I've got it down now. I'm a great coach and everything else. I don't have to learn anymore. Be interested, not interesting. If you're interested, if you're interested in your students, if you're interested in your client, if you're interested in learning, like if you're interested in the world, like that's attractive. It attracts you. Whereas like if you're, if you're what you're aiming for is being interesting, it might work sometimes. <laughs> like, and, and it might do the exact opposite, you know, the other times of like pushes people away, dedicating yourself to the discipline of mastery, which is being a student forever. The best teachers, at least in my life, always demonstrated that, right? That was, that was their character. It's mastering learning and that being a constant pursuit. If we master learning, it, it inherently, um, you know, moves us forward. I love that so much. 
Do you feel like curiosity is like an innate thing? I mean, we even talked about how different you are from your other siblings, or is that cultivated? What's your perspective on that? I think you I think you innately have a level of it, and then it gets cultivated and strengthened, and it grows and blossoms, if you will, and becomes something that um, you know you have an appetite for it every yeah. single day. So I think I had you know, an innate yeah. level of it. And then it just kept getting nurtured by different individuals, situations, circumstances. And then I started to realize that it was um, a strength, but also could create opportunities for me. Yeah. Um, specifically the curiosity or your capacity to, for languages or what, what's, what are you talking about? I think, I think it's the curiosity. So yeah. I think at my, at my core, Curiosity has really been a catalyst for me in many, many ways. So I think my curiosity, because I loved asking questions, people took notice of that. My appetite wasn't easily met. Like I kept wanting to ask more. There's um, IDEO Design, one of the top design Mm -hmm. firms in the world. They had this whole um, premise that you should ask five whys. Mm. Yes. Just keep asking why but five times will get you to a better answer. Yeah. And so I was probably doing that before I knew that it was an actual design thinking thing. Yeah. But I would ask, well, why and, and how and what? And so I was really curious that way. And I think folks noticed that about me. Yeah. Where other kids would take what take what they gave them and they would be gone. Well, and in contrast, I feel like oftentimes it takes a lot of humility to be curious and it takes admitting you don't know to be curious. And I think a lot of times people, especially like in an authority age, we're all trying to establish our authority. They think they establish their authority with their answers. The problem with that is answers may attract followers, but they rarely attract mentors. And, yeah. and oh, yeah. right. And so your questions, and I'm trying, I'm thinking now, like if you want to get a mentor, how can you upgrade your level of curiosity? What is it that you don't know? Who knows what you don't know? And how can you, Come, come to them with your questions. Yes, and how do you attract them to want to keep pouring into you? So then keep going with that because you can be curious like in a taking way. You can be curious like in a kind of a jerk. Yeah, way. you can. Yes, you can, <laughs> right? Yes. How would, you, how would you bifurcate those so a person knows the healthy way to get curious? So I think it's always a matter of your intention. My grandfather would say, pay attention to your intention. And so the intention behind your curiosity is that, are you taking, are you in this taker mindset and then I'm out? Or is it in a reciprocal way? Hey, if you will share that, I can share something back. Mm. Right. And so this generosity, right. Of that exchange, I think is really important because then people want to be around you. They want to spend time with you because they read you real quick. (laughs) My least favorite training I've ever done was was for a room full of therapists because they all knew everything already. Yeah. And it was really difficult to have a conversation around what they didn't know they didn't know because they have such a vast... And by the way, I think the same is true for any any well-developed domain of expertise. Theologians are particularly obnoxious. Uh, therapists can be that way. Coaches can be that way. Doctors can be that way. You know, and it's like the more the more robust a field of knowledge is, and the more you feel like you have a handle on the robustness of that domain. It's humility, right? Like we just have to be humble enough to know that we have something to learn. We are so agile and fast paced, um, but I will say that we struggle, like many other organizations, in making the commitment to prioritize learning. And what yeah. Novus has allowed us to do is to make that commitment. And it's whole, you know, you're holding us in, into account for carving out that time to learn how to move from, you know, being consultants to coaches, right? And how we can empower our teams to come up with their own visions and get out of their way and, and going after those visions. We're too fast paced, right? It's, it's easy to put learning at the bottom of the list. You know, you might get to high performance. You might even be told you have, you know, high potential. You are a high performer. In those cases, you might stop, right? You become complacent. You already got to be the best. Yeah. And so maybe now you can coast, right? Or, you know, what is there yep. there for you to do? And And so that's really the shift in mindset that we're trying to make is, we don't want our team members ever becoming complacent. And you can compare that as, as a company. When I joined Shape, you know, we had become the best at roll form bumpers, 
And I wonder to the degree with which we stop looking outside, right? We stopped continuing to grow and learn because we had achieved that. And we have since, you know, over the last couple of years, and again, why, you know, this methodology that we're talking about makes so much sense for us is we're looking outside, right? We're always looking to evolve, continue to press the envelope, to innovate, to grow as a organization. I mean, I, I, I saw guys that, that chased the big schools that got in there. They got, they got kind of washed. They got kind of got washed away. Um, you get in as a freshman, you red shirt, um, you wait around a couple of years, you finally get the players a junior or a senior, and you just kind of limit your opportunities to show what you can really do. Uh, versus the, the, the path that I took it, again, it was the one that was a little bit less traveled, but I knew that I was maybe three or four steps away from where I wanted to be. And, you know, that path gave me a chance to play and get on the field earlier. I've always been, been a proponent of if you can learn in the fire, that's the best way to learn. Hmm. And, you know, going there and having a chance to, to play early, figure out exactly where I needed to get better, where I needed to improve. Yes. Um, you know, when you when you can get that information, that real time data, it, yeah. it just makes it makes the journey um, a lot more tangible. You, you can touch it and you can feel it. Yeah, and you can grow a lot faster. You can mm-hmm. rapid iterate. Like it sounds right. like in, our, in the firm, we call it, we call it uh, just getting more reps, like just getting yep. in there, getting it. And that's what you chose the place where you're going to get the most amount of reps. Win, win or loss, you, you kind of digest it and you get back in the lab and, and you figure out how to move forward. And, you know, what you, what you learn in sports and really, again, in life, because uh, I, think, I think the two, the two are more parallel than, than a lot of folks tend to realize is... Yeah. Um, you learn more in a loss than you do in a win. Yeah. Right. That's why it's so hard to, um, to beat a team, you know, two times in a row. This is what's fun about you too, Brian, is you, you're a, a fun hybrid of intellectual and adventure and challenging your body. I mean, it really is a fun paradox. Is that unique amongst SEALs? Or do you find that there are actually a lot of SEALs who have a capacity or an appetite for developing their minds as much as their bodies. It's a, just a lifetime of commitment to learning for me. And I think that is unequivocally probably what's the most underappreciated and the most powerful cachet of, of the SEAL community and of special operations is it is a group of, well, and, and as operators, men who are radically dedicated to learning and becoming expert learners and not all pursue that maybe intellectually in terms of books, but these are all people who are extremely passionate learners, whether that's, you know, learning a weapon system or learning a tactic or communications, but you would be amazed at how many are incredibly deeply read uh, across a wide range of topics. So I always felt deeply intellectually humbled. It was frankly what drew me into the space. I was working in the Pentagon with a number of special operations leaders and I think the archetype that we often idolize in society is one of this sort of it's all about physicality, which of course, physicality is important, but that's like table stakes. Hmm. Being physical and physically tough, frankly, is not that hard. Hmm. Being intellectually elevated and emotionally elevated is like a whole nother layer of pursuit. And that's where you get, you know, that, that's like the true essence of, of great warriors. My number one value, it, it, you know, probably for the last 15 years of my life has been humility. I think of humility not as the absence of ego or braggadocious, but as a, as a true commitment to learning and knowing that no matter how much we've learned, there's more to learn, there's more to give, more to teach. And it's just a posture in the world, which is open to new ideas and people. And, and I will say, I've also absorbed that over time because of the people who I've been privileged to be around or who've been mentors in some of those environments, uh, without fail, the, the, the ones who are the most impressive are the most humble. Which I think is counterintuitive. It's like, oh, this person would be really confident because they've reached the apex of their respective industry. But it turns out that those, like when I was in special operations, these guys who were revered warriors were always, they had the beginner's mindset. It was amazing. I mean, as good as I ever was, I was never a master of it in my mind. Like I, I would always be hungry. Like there was always something to learn, right? And if you've mastered something, there's nothing more you can do, right? Like in my mind. So at least yeah. my definition of it, I think one of the things for me was always craving, like I really, I craved to learn more about 
my craft. I, I was never satisfied with that. It's so fun listening to you describe this. And, and it sounds like what you're saying, the theme is the moment I thought I arrived is the moment I, I was not where I needed to be. It's, it's this progressive commitment to constantly growing and learning and, and curiosity and development. Yeah, I would say, I, th I think, you know, you, you guys made a good point early. There is a balance, right? There is a balance in knowing who you are mm. and being good and knowing that you have something to give that's valuable and good and consistent and um, helpful. Like being confident in that is great, but how do you hold that confidence and swagger with the humility that comes with yeah how to always yeah. crave better. You know, how do you hold both of those? What would you want to say to the people who are listening to this who feel like currently they're at the top of their game and either A, they're experiencing the euphoria of that or they're kind of experiencing mm -hmm. the emptiness of that, but they feel like they're doing well. What would you want to say to them? That's a great question. I would say try to discipline yourself to not think of it being at the top of your game or a place. Like don't think of it as a placeholder kind of just be a lifelong learner. Like, I think that, I think that's, that would be the message. Um, and if you feel empty in it, then try to go outside your comfort zone to, to introduce something new into your world. And if you feel like you're at the top of your game, that's a dangerous place. I would challenge that person because mm -hmm. you can get real complacent real quick. And mm -hmm. if you're not real hungry for knowledge and whatever endeavor you're trying to pursue, or even somewhere else outside that makes you a you know, a, a very well-rounded person, then you're going to get lonely real quick. One and two is you're not going to really be the best that you can be. That's the real message. The message is, you know, you've, you've never arrived. I mean, it's a journey that you never, you never master, you know, you only, you can play it well, but you never really master. Like that's my, my mentality at least. Fear and risk-taking. In this section, we hear from Jason Jaggard, Linda Wolverton, Esther Munn, Dan Leflar, David Brown, David Gerber, myself, Johan Martinez Kalulian, Chantel Little, Janet Breitenbach, Rosanna Tomyuk. So then what's going on in your mind? Because there's no guarantee this is gonna work. You're working on your second book, your substitute teaching. What was that season like? Like what, what's going on in your head? I didn't have anything to lose at the time. Hmm. I didn't have a family. I didn't have any money. I was a single woman in Los Angeles. I had a cat. I can always get a job to pay the rent. You know, I was pursuing my dream. It didn't matter. You know, and, it, uh, and I had to try. Yeah. Had to try. Was there any, like, was there any fear during that time? Or was it just clear? It was clearer than it is now. There's a lot more fear now. Really? Because you have, you have more to lose. Yeah. Fearless then. Yeah. Because really, there was nothing. It was just me and the art and the cat. <laughs> you know? That'd be a great children's book. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting how the, um, the more you achieve, the more you have to lose, which brings greater fear. I wonder if people need to be reminded how little they have to lose, especially when it's in the beginning. Like, if you're scared now, this is, this is the least scared. If you're, if you're new in this leadership journey or this creative journey or the artistic journey, you have, That's you have the less least to lose. scared you're going to be. Yep. That's correct. It only gets yep. worse. It only gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's some like beauty into not figuring everything out because, you know, you have your vision and everything figured out. It's not going to go in that way anyway. So if you have passion for it and I always encourage people to just try it. Hey, if you don't, if that business doesn't work out, you could go back to your full-time job or whatever you want to do. It's just like, I think it's that fear that, kind of blocks a lot of people. And I think there is yeah. a reason why Tina and I started our business when we were in our 20s, because we did not, we were just so naive. Like if we were to, we, we came to one another and met one another in like maybe like mid thirties, I think there were so many risk factors and calculations and whatever that we probably didn't, we were probably just onto our you know path of doing our own thing, maybe like in full-time jobs. Yeah, But I think there is, um, uh, beauty and something that could be valuable when things are not totally figured out, where you're kind of entering into, you know what, I just want to try this. If it doesn't work out, I'll figure something out. And that in itself is a luxury for you to be able to think that like, hey, maybe I could start my own thing. That thought is a privilege and a, mm. and a luxury mm. 
you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I always encourage people to try it. Do you see that fear in, in a lot of other people that you're connected to in their own businesses? Do you see people holding themselves back? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people that I engage with or connected with, obviously I'm working through that as well. And, you know, as a human too, but yeah. I'm just curious to like, oh, where is that mindset coming from? Because I think one of the powerful questions that Chris recently asked me was, well, what is the best thing that could happen to you? And I just <laughs> looked at him and I'm like, you know, I don't think anybody thinks like that. <laughs> huh. it, is, um, it is rare. Yeah, it is very rare. And it really does shift things into a lot more simple. And why wouldn't you expect something that could be best thing for you in, in, yeah. in terms of what you're doing and, you know, the next thing that you want to try? You weren't born blind. Would, would you mind sharing a little bit about what that process was like for you psychologically from going, going to, from having something that it seemed like everybody has, yeah. losing something that everybody has? What was that like for you? I mean, honestly, it's very damaging. And, at a young age, this is where I guess you could say you're mostly influenced. Of course, you can be influenced too at a later age as well. But being so young, not really understanding what's going on with you, you know, one minute you're able to see the next minute you're not, it's very fearful. And I was dealing with so much in the sense of just what I was seeing in my head or how Mm -hmm. my brain would comprehend things like, okay, I'm able to see one minute, next minute, I'm not. Why can't I see that? Sport honestly transformed me. You know, being yeah. able to utilize these sports, it took me from a kid who used to play sports to not being able to play sports, someone of fear, you know, and despair and depression to here I am. I feel I can conquer the world and do whatever, you know, and anything and everything, you know, yeah. as long as I put my mind to, you know, to it, because the physical part is one thing. But it's the mental aspect that got me to where I was, being able to help see and change that perspective. And I would motivate myself with these sports. Sometimes I'll just speak to myself in my head in the sense of just like, hey, look, you're at the lowest point in your life. Are you going to let this get to you? Sometimes life is going to push you backwards. But are you going to fight back or are you just going to give up? You can't let this person or this thing, you know, overtake you. I use those same concepts in the sense of, okay, overcoming my boundaries in life, you know, doesn't matter the situation, doesn't matter the resistance there is, I'm going to fight back. What I would say to anybody else who is listening, you know, don't be afraid of the unknown Mm -hmm. because going forward with a lot of things, sometimes you don't really see the, the end goal. You do see it in one aspect of what it can be and what you want it to be. But sometimes you get thrown a curveball. And even though you get thrown as a curveball, that doesn't mean that the outcome still can't be what you want it to be. You know, sometimes you want to have to adapt and don't be afraid of what the adaptation is. Like, I'm afraid of what may be if I were to do this or I'm afraid of what may happen if I do that or if I go this way or that way. Just adapt to every situation that comes. What shift had to take place in you that created the growth? Well, when it comes to... So the word that immediately jumped into my my mind is courage. Mm -hmm. Like a willing to fail. Like that. it's that risk. It's seeing, it's feeling fear and then actually stepping into the action um, and it reminds me, like when I was, when I was a baby coach, uh, getting trained, we were doing a high ropes course and we were, and I hate heights, like really hate heights. Um, we were at this high ropes course and there was like a, a line strung up. I don't know if it, it felt like 300 feet. It was probably more like 25 feet, but it was, it was high <laughs> off the ground. Um, and it was strung between two trees and there was another line above it with ropes hanging down and you were harnessed in. And you got to like walk across and grab these ropes. And I was about halfway across the line. And one of the other coaches who was getting trained yelled up to me. He's like, hey, what's occurring for you now? Which is such a freaking coach question. question. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying not to vomit. No, I, but he, <laughs> he said, hey, what's occurring for you right now? And, and what ran through my head, I, it's an answer I have never forgotten in, in years since. And it was, I'm scared, but I don't care. Hmm. And, and like, I knew in my head, if I, I feel fear, but if I don't keep my mind fixated on this point that I'm trying to get to, 
the fear is going to overwhelm me. I'm going to fall. And I feel that fear. And it's like, okay, what, what is the choice I'm going to now make in the midst of feeling that? So for me, it's like that fear almost has become a really helpful barometer. Now, uh, surrounded by people in the firm and people with believability who can who can keep me sober in the midst of my decisions. But that fear, that fear is where it starts. And then the courage to actually like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go and see what happens. Courage, I think is essential for all of us when it comes to this type of growth. What was it like saying no to these other opportunities? Maybe that were still coming your way. It was scary for sure. (laughs) For sure. Because I was, I was hiring people. I knew that to hire people, and to start becoming more choosy about opportunities was was difficult to do. Because when you're building, like earlier in my entrepreneurial career, sometimes I felt this pressure, well, I have to, I have to take on this deal because I gotta make payroll on Friday. It's like yeah. Monday and I'm like, well, I gotta get that deposit check in by Friday to make payroll. <laughs> so so it, it was scary, mm. but I also knew, I have this, lately I've been feeling that when I get a little bit afraid, it, it means that I should do it. Yeah. So I felt that like deeply and I was reading this book niche down and it was really helpful just practically to consider what that looks like and and why there's benefits. But I just, I knew in, in my gut, I knew that I should do it. Yeah. And it was scaring me a little bit, but it, it was kind of like, I have to push through that and Mm. do it anyways. So it was, it was scary and exciting all in one. And we got lots of wonderful confirmation from customers and whatnot, but that came like six months after Mm. as the message was coming out. So you have to just have the courage to step into it and stick to it. So if you could speak to uh, yourself at eight nineteen when you started the company now, um, what, what would you tell her? Oh man, I would have said hire a CFO, hire Janet (laughs) 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 for sure. Um, Do it now (laughs) for sure. Um, And take dream bigger and take bigger risks. At the time, I had I couldn't really like I had not much to lose. I used scholarship money to launch my business. I lived at home. I was a little kid. I had very little that I was putting on the table, but I still was thinking like a a small business owner, even though deep down in my heart, I wanted to dream much bigger. I was afraid to, I would just say like, you know, no ceilings. That's what I'd say. That's what I tell myself every day. I just thought it was so interesting that she says I would dream bigger. And to some people listening, they're probably like at 19, you started a business that's bigger than what I could think. So it's just, it's just interesting how relative what taking bigger risks or dreaming bigger is, which is such a testament to, we don't really know what we're capable of. Yeah. And just the, the fact that you are look back and you're like, man, I should have taken bigger risks is just, I don't know. I think it's very inspiring and uh, good for people to hear and be thinking about where am I not taking bigger risks? You know, like you have to risk it to, to actually see it flourish. And I think of like Dan and Jason, the guy you're talking about, it's like, he's motivated by intimacy and he risked, you know, like he's hired this firm. He's been vulnerable with his team to say, look guys, like, I I don't want us to be just about money. I want you taking your, your wives out on dates, you know? And so there's that, like that vulnerable place that you put yourself in to see flourish the thing that's actually really important to you. And so I think like our listeners, even like looking at your life right now and and saying like, what's causing me pain right now? And like having the emotional intelligence, look, the the most successful people are emotionally intelligent. They're not intelligent. So you can observe your emotions right now. Notice what's happening. I think you have a clue to what's motivating you. And then you can also look at, am I having pain because I've risked it? Or am I having pain because I've done nothing in that area whatsoever and I need to start being cause in the matter? And I think yeah, that's a great distinction. I just like, well, we, yeah, that's that's awesome. So I'm, I'm risking it here, y'all. It's not because yeah. I'm not. Well, that's the, you got to spend money to make money, right? That's the thing there. And then yeah. Dan, you had a great line earlier where you were talking about with intimacy, where you're risking honesty and vulnerability. People may not respond the way you want, but the people who do will deepen the intimacy. I had never written a musical before, but I think because I, I don't know, what is it? I'm, I'm just fearless in those moments. Creatively, I'm fearless. It's like, I can match you creatively. I know I can. So I wasn't afraid. What does that feel like, that fearlessness? Like, what's what are the thoughts? And, and, and do you think that you can teach that? Do you think that you can help other people 
cultivate that kind of fearlessness to where a first-time feature film writer can work with one of the most iconic lyricists of a generation and show up as a partner? It's like you're a horse with blinders on. Hmm. You have blinders on. Don't look at anything else. Screw them. Who cares what they're doing? Yeah. Just look at what you're doing. And then that takes away the, the, co the competition fear, you know, all those, those fears that you're not good enough, all of that. You just focus, focus on the creativity. We sincerely hope this episode left you with some powerful ideas and questions to ponder. We look forward to hearing from you and continuing to serve you. We are committed to creating valuable content here, content that best serves your needs. So we'd love to hear from you. How would you like to see this podcast evolve? What topics most interest you? Click on the link in the description to share your thoughts and feedback with us. We send you into this new year wishing you a sense of optimism, curiosity, and empowerment. My friends, happy new year.